This week on Geek Explained, as the end of the Halloween season draws near, we're diving into the dark waters of Thai horror. As I'm joined by returning guest Porn Sock Pachetcho to discuss his latest chilling adventure starring the Dead Boy Detectives. <laughs> Welcome back to Geeksplained. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and I hope everyone had a wonderful weekend. I'm going to let you know right off the bat, I sure did. I had a great uh, conference this past weekend focused on voiceover, and I'm just feeling refreshed. I'm feeling good. Uh, this is uh, this is just, it's a real good vibes week for me, y'all, so I hope you all are doing well. Um we also have, of course, a lot of uh, good stuff going on, Spider-Man stuff related, which is weird. Um, we got the at least the early cast announcements for Spider-Man freshman year, which I am told is still happening. We'll have to see, but I'm told it's still happening. Um, it does look like... Uh, I, th- I think his name is Hudson Thames, uh, or Hudson Thames, uh, from the zombie what-if episode is going to be kind of ported over to voice peter parker here uh we already know charlie cox is returning as i believe he is playing daredevil i'm not completely sure uh carrie walgren is going to be playing aunt may and we do have Zeno robinson who i'm a big fan of playing harry osborne which is going to be really fun but Y'all know what I'm thinking of or what I'm talking about when I'm saying Spider-Man news. Spider-Man 2 dropped this past Friday as of this recording. And I am currently looking across the room right now and just chomping at the bit to get back into that world. Um, The game is tremendous. And I don't need to tell you that. If you're playing it, you already know. And if you're not playing it, you've probably heard from everybody else. I will say, just as a quick thing, y'all... If you're using social media and you're playing this game, don't spoil it for people. Like, I had to... I didn't get to start playing the game until Sunday night, and already I was seeing a bunch of stuff that I had to click off of. A good friend of mine had the entire game basically spoiled for him over the weekend on Twitter. Uh, Just just be cognizant of that, you know? Just be be aware, because some people don't get to play it right away, and some people are very sensitive to spoilers. So, just be aware of those things, but... That brings us to this week's episode, which is part four of Geektober. Uh, This entire month has been dedicated to the Halloween season, and we are continuing that tradition with returning guest Porn Sock Pichetchode. I love, love, love getting to chat with Porn Sock, and we got to get right into the weeds with Dead Boy Detectives, his installment of the Sandman Universe line, and it is absolutely incredible. You mix in your Thai horror, you mix in your detective stories, you mix in a little bit, a couple droplets of Stranger Things, and maybe a little bit of Stand By Me, who knows, you just gotta read the book, but 
It's always wonderful to speak with him, and so we got to really dig into this story, uh, basically issue by issue, and just kind of dig into his process, look at his inspirations, his story behind the story, and it's just a wonderful conversation. And we're doing this not only because it's a wonderful story, but also because the trade is coming out in two weeks as of release of this episode on November 7th. So make sure y'all go pick it up once it does come out. I know I'll be getting my copy for sure. But we, of course, also have this week's Comics Countdown, where I'll be chatting you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week. And you know we got the weekly review, where I'll be reviewing episode number three of Loki. Got lots of thoughts. Lots of thoughts. So uh, make sure you stay tuned for that after the jump. But for now, let's roll right on into the main event, the main course, the entree, if you will, as I'm joined by Pornsock Pachetcho to put the Geek Explain spotlight on Dead Boy Detectives. Tell me if you've heard this one before. Mystery-loving kids solving mysteries. Everybody knows the story, right? Well, this time there's a catch. For Charles Rowland and Edwin Payne, solving supernatural crimes isn't just a hobby, it's a lifestyle. Because these boys aren't just great investigators, they're also victims. That's right. What sets them apart from every other detective story duo? is the fact that the heroes of these tales just also happen to be dead. The Dead Boy Detectives have been around for quite a while, debuting in The Sandman, number 25, way back in April 1991. The adventures of Charles and Edwin have taken them all over the world, and that's kind of the magical thing about telling stories about two kids solving mysteries. You can tell those stories anywhere, with anyone. You can tell it in the dark alleys of London, England, and you can also tell those stories in the sun-kissed streets of Los Angeles. And that brings us to our story today. In part four of Geektober, we are dedicating the entire month of October to horror, Halloween, spooky, spooky nonsense. And this is the best kind of spooky, spooky nonsense because we are going to be talking about the Sandman universe, Dead Boy Detectives, with the writer of that story. I am so excited to welcome back to the podcast, Pornsock Pachet Show. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, man. I'm so happy to be back. Thank you for having me back. Uh, this is this is really fun. I really enjoyed talking to you the first time, so it's great to get a chance to do it again. Same here. And you are actually our first returning creator oh, cool. to the show. Nice. So big, That's awesome. big deal for me. I'm really excited to <laughs> have you back here. And I know we had a uh, listener, if you uh, haven't yet, go back. Uh, this past December, we did a whole thing called In December, where we talked exclusively about creator-owned books, and we wrapped up the whole month by getting to talk to Pornstock about one of my favorite comics of the last few years, The Good Asian. Uh, keep that name in mind. If you haven't read it already, go out, buy the big old oversized hardback. It is gorgeous. It is beautiful. And you need to go read this story. But we had mentioned a little bit during that the 
inklings of a story called Dead Boy Detectives, because I believe it was either the week of that episode releasing or the week after issue one dropped. And for the next six months, we got to tune in to one of Charles and Edwin's many misadventures, this time on the sunny streets of Los Angeles, as they dealt with a blending of styles and a blending of cultures, which is something that I'm pretty sure you're excelling at. <laughs> there's, there, there's some there's a running theme with your stories yeah, like that, which yeah. I love. Yeah. I mean it is something that I like do I it, it made specific sense for Dead Boy Detectives. Mm -hmm. So much of them are about, especially now, like, you know, they, so the Dead Boy Detectives, they were introduced, uh, they were created by Neil Gaiman right. and uh, Matt Wagner in the pages of Sandman. And they would spin off into their own sort of miniseries. And, you know, it's about, you know, Edwin who died in like 1906 and Charles who died in 19, I want to say 88 or so, or in the nine in the early nineties, mm -hmm. uh, which is when the book happened at the time. And, 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 you know, and it's very much about those sort of these best friends, but yet there is a little bit of a culture clash because they're, they are for almost a century apart. Yeah. And now the story takes place in 2023, which is over a century since Edwin had died. So this idea of these boys, you know, trying to acclim still acclimate to the world and, and all that, that was really appealing to me. And, and so as a result, the culture clashes, and it's something that obviously as an Asian American is something that's, you know, part right. of sort of my my background but that this idea of like you know modernity and, and con us constantly having to readjust uh to to take those things that are traditional and update to modernity that made a lot of sense for dead boy detectives uh you know it it part of the joy of writing the book was how do you make a coming of age story for people who can't grow up and um, and yeah, and that was really the fun. That push and pull was the fun. And so as a result, throwing a bunch of things, East meets West, some humor and some horror, some whimsy and, and some, some extreme violence, um, <laughs> that, you know, all of that was a, was a fun mix. And it's all very much sort of within the tapestry of what, you know, what Neil Gaiman laid down, I, you know, Neil Gaiman, the mythology of Sandman is one of the most inclusive mythologies in pop culture because Absolutely. it incorporates every single mythology from all over the world because everything dreams. And so, and that's one of the wonderful things about Sandman is that you can tell so many different types of stories. And so Dead Boy Detectives is an attempt to sort of like take from that Sandman tradition and, and, and do so and do something hopefully that feels a little fresh. For sure. And I think that's, that's something that, is so magical about not just this story but i think the entirety of the big push for sandman universe yeah. so far is that yeah. all of these stories wildly different from each other yeah. when it comes to subject matter when it comes to characters involved but there are still little inklings of a wider yeah. universe of a connected yeah movie. there's a there's an appearance by death at the very yeah. very end which i yep. love and there's <laughs> no you. like there's no grand entrance for her. She's just, yeah. she's always watching, which is yeah. poignant for a story about two kids who are essentially running from death. Yeah. And yeah. there's, and let me just point this out, listeners. We're going to be talking about spoilers here. Um, <laughs> this is a really exciting story. You should be reading this. We're not going to go beat by beat, spoil everything, but there are certain things that I absolutely want to talk to you about. Yeah. Um, so, Needless to say, if you haven't read the story, go pick up the issues. We're also getting a pretty exciting trade that's coming out. Yeah. Not too, not too 
not too not far out too... from when this episode drops. Yeah, yeah. I think it's beginning first... of November. Yeah. Yeah, beginning so of November. Week, I, I will admit, basically, when you're listening yeah, to this. Yeah, yes, next week. Next week. I, I'll be honest, I've got my uh, copies early, so I just oh. got my trade, and it looks, gore, it looks gorgeous. It's very interesting. Um, the trade printed lighter than the individual issues. Oh. But it but it looks it still looks it looks cool in a different way yeah just with, with the colors just lightened a little bit so it, it was in a way i got to like re-experience the book uh just by by, by just what it's one of the one and many things i can geek out about publishing about just how like <laughs> little things like paper stock will be like oh it almost feels like a different experience now because sure. you know because there's a different paper stock and that's what the case was here well and to to that point like this book is really it's fascinating to me because when I hear like a horror book, when I hear mm -hmm. a story that deals with supernatural horror, um, Ty Ghost, and we're going to get into that. Yeah. It's the, the art style that always like comes to mind is something that's a little bit more heavy handed when it comes yeah. to the shadows, when it comes to yeah. something like in, like an Andrea Sorrentino of yeah. that, like, but you got to work with Jeff Stokely oh, who is incredible in this yeah, book. Yeah, yeah, he's a revelation. He's absolutely a revelation. And, and, and it's part of, you know, the challenge of the book was, I mean, and you, and you set up the, the Dead Boy Detectives quite beautifully and quite nicely. There's two boys who died decades apart and they're best friends. They're now ghosts who are best friends and they solve crimes and that's what they do for fun. And sort of in what our story is, a case kind of brings them to LA where it, and LA happens to be, outside of Thailand, mm. uh, the, the the place in the world that is the second largest Thai population in the world. And so they come running smack dab into Thai ghosts. And Thai ghosts, the mythology of Thai ghosts is, are immensely fucked up. They're immensely <laughs> screwed up. And I remember just reading these stories like growing up and hearing these stories growing up. It's like, these are the craziest things I've ever heard. So the idea of taking this very dark, very twisted tradition of Thai ghosts. And the other thing about Thai ghosts is Thai ghosts any Thai folklore, any piece of Thai folklore gets absorbed into ghost stories in Thailand. Mm -hmm. So as a result, there are hundreds of different types of ghosts. Yes. And, and, they, and the ones that retain in the consciousness are the most twisted of those ghosts. And so we get to incorporate a lot of those ghosts into this book. And that's where the boys end up meeting these ghosts. So it's kind of like them in, with their whimsical, playful characters and world thrust into some like really hardcore horror and you know, and 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 kind of bringing in a way, bringing uh, it back to the roots of salmon, uh, which is what James Tynan is doing mm -hmm. in his book as sort of a horror book. So I would like talk about it as like sort of imagine like Stranger Things set in the Sandman universe, and yes. you're you kind of get the right idea because you've got these two boys, but they find meet these Tycos who are also died when they were children. So you've got these like five kid ghosts, all with like different ghost types like running around. And, and, and for me, it was a horror book. It was, I had a hard time after, I wrote a horror book called Infidel back in 2018. Mm -hmm. And it coming out of the pandemic, it was hard for me to uh, figure out a handle on horror. I, I It was hard for me to make horror relevant because it just seemed like real life was just that much, you know, that that much crazier. Right. And, and this was a way for me, the using horror to talk about the coming of age, to talk about hope, to talk about idealism, to, to talk about like, do, are there any places for that anymore? 
uh, Dead Boy Detectives kind of made me see like, oh, we can use it to talk about that. And so that's kind of what that book was for me. And, and so as a result, having an artist like Jeff Stokely who could do the exuberance and the youth of the characters, has a range to do that, but the same thing can do like this hardcore horror, this Oof. really gory sort of stuff. Yeah. Like that was tantamount. And it was, it was tough to find. There's not that many people with that kind of range. Like, you know, you mentioned people who like do like, and I, and I love them all who do kind of like a more realistic sort of thing, right. but then they can't really do kids and the excitement of kids and the youth of kids and the earnestness and the whimsicalness of kids as well. And so finding, and, or if they do that, they have to sh completely shift their style. Mm -hmm. So someone who can do that within the range of one artistic style was important. And, and it, it wasn't a very long list. And, you know, and, and Jeff was a guy that like, he had been doing, he'd done the Squire, he'd been doing right. some fantasy, but he had never done horror before then. But if you looked at some of his cover work, and illustration work you see he had that gear mm -hmm. and so it was really exciting to kind of go to him it's like we think you're right for this and he's like oh my god i've been wanting to do horror for so long i had no <laughs> idea how i could like convince people to let me do this i and he was just like a hundred percent in and then and yeah and then so we just really got to play and, and the thing that i love about and you you alluded to this too this too that the stories are in sort of this universe like uh, what i really love getting to do because it's not how i work i don't work in shared universe things but like James is doing James Tynan is doing this killer job on 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 Sandman Universe Nightmare Country where he's mm -hmm. following Corinthian. And so the idea that he kind of let me he passed me the baton of the character of Thessaly. I got to forward her story about telling my story about Dead Boy Detectives and then give that baton back to James so, so he can tell the next part of Thessaly's story within this bigger epic that he's doing. Like that really jazzed me as like a comics fan. Well, and the idea of that too of like taking all of these various ideas and these various mm -hmm. um directives for these characters yeah. having it be part of this kind of moving and breathing and living universe yeah you have to know that there are going to be clashing of styles the idea yeah. of horror meets like you mentioned whimsy and there yeah. is a really fun amount of whimsy with jeff stokely's art in this yeah. because he yeah, knows really how to make kids look and feel awkward yeah. and yeah. there is something just wonderful about you know, I'm, I'm looking at a panel right now where it's the kids all having this really serious conversation. And then, you know, Edwin just kind of looks up and there's just a giant snake head looming over him. Yeah, like, yeah, hey. yeah, yeah. like it's it's magical in that yeah. way of like having that kind of balance. And it's very Stranger Things of kind of walking this tightrope of yeah. both the the whimsy of being kids in this, you know, very uh, stand by me, let's like yeah. have these kids try and figure out what they are and what their place is, while yeah. also dealing with, oh, and things are also trying to actively kill us and corrupt our spirits. Right. And you yeah. mentioned the idea of having multiple ghosts in this. And yeah. that was something that's fascinated me because I think for most uh, Western cultures, a ghost is a ghost. There's like yes. one kind of ghost and for most of Edwin and Charles's adventures, that's kind of their purview. That's what they understand yeah. to be. It's like your ghost, you lock things, you squoosh. Like that's yeah. that's your skill set. And what I love that you introduce into this story is not just the various types of ghosts that there are, but also each one of them has to to put it in layman's terms like an x-men power like their own yep, mutant yep. ability like each yep, one yep. is like it's like a pokemon like they yeah, all have yeah. like this is you know that melvin's a snake ghost we have yes. uh, tanya who is a knock mother who yes. i think is 
I personally think is the most fascinating out of all of them yeah. because there's something yeah. about just the body horror aspect yeah. and yeah. then this thing that they aren't sure if it's real that people who fall in yeah. love with them are cursed maybe they're right, not right. and there's even you know that extra layer of like these are ghosts living their ghost lives but they still have superstitions on other yeah. ghosts yep 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 layers yep. on that is fascinating did did you I guess with the kind of the uh, four or five main Thai ghosts that you introduced yeah. into the story, um, Snake Ghost, Knock Mother, the uh, the Hollow Back, which Jai yep. is, yeah, um, and then we have the uh, I I don't want to pronounce this incorrectly, um, uh, the Krasu, the Krasu. Thank you. Yeah, yeah I was yeah. going to say Krasu, but yeah, the Krasu that is you want to talk about body horror that immediately is <laughs> yeah. like, Oh, these two kids at the very beginning of the book, the first page <laughs> yeah. is like, Oh, it's this sweet story about these two kids who are awkward. And then yeah. the girl just happens to have her head jump out with her <laughs> right. spinal cord, like yeah. terrifying. And then you have yeah. the little golden boys who yeah. are terrifying in their own way. Like yeah. what was the process of you picking the types of Thai ghosts for this and were there any that you had to leave off that you were excited I mean, about there were tons that i there they're literally like like dozens of, yeah. of Thai ghosts out there so the ones i the, the the best of that i chose from really was the ones that sort of persisted in my head that kind of like there was a you know there was that idea darwinism where it's just mm -hmm. like the ones i remember the clearest you know so like the grisu was was one of the ones that like everyone in thailand knows because it's such a distinctive and Oof. for readers who don't know it is it is it presents as a woman and then and then when night comes her head gets ripped off her body her entrails is dripping off of her neck and then it goes out and attacks people and that is just so persisted you know, in Thai culture, because it's such a distinctive visual and yeah. such a distinctive, you know, concept, you know, so like that, I, I always knew about, you know, the golden, uh, the golden boys, uh, the Kumantong is that that's one where, you know, that's one that's definitely sort of stuck in my head from when I was growing up, where there are these aborted fetuses that are cooked over fire and then painted with a gold lacquer. And as a result, they are meant to have this superstitious sort of like power, like, that is something that I remembered from when I was a kid. And so a lot of that was, I remember those visuals, you know, and some for them, for some of them, like the, the knack mother, I remember the visual, but I didn't know her, I didn't remember her story. And so I had to research like, what was actually her story again? I remember yeah. Hollowback Ghost, but it's like, was there more than their mythology and all that? So I remember a lot of those, 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 it's distinctly the visuals of those characters, because mm -hmm. you would see them pop up in, you know, different Thai cultural things in different Thai stories and different Thai like comics and, and, and movies and all that. And then it was just like, and I did a little bit of research. I know I, I did a lot of research, but I did a little bit of research trying to figure out any other ghosts. And there were others, but I decided to just, the, the the stars ended up being the ones that just like, you know, they they still, you know, after 20, 30, 40 years, they're still in my head after hearing about them from a kid growing up. Yeah. There, there, there was a there's a reason why those those images persisted in my mind. And so that's why I wanted to uh, bring them to the story. And that's like, oh, those are my Avengers. And, you know, like, <laughs> to, to, like... I, I just want to hear this, like, really like uh just really horror inspired version of that avengers theme now, <laughs> yeah, just like yeah, slowly yeah. pushing forward these monsters as they yeah, like, yeah. get together but and it's cool too because it sets up for any kind of like ensemble cast or any kind of yeah. group story you have to narratively make 
reasons for them and their you know their skill set to be viable for the story that you're telling i mean melvin is a character who comes across (laughs) and i don't know if you know this fairly unlikable at the start (laughs) and when it comes out you know he's a snake ghost and it turns out he's the only one that can do any kind of physical damage to the other ghosts that are attacking them all of a sudden it's like okay we understand the skill set here. <laughs> yeah, 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 but also, yeah. what you do really brilliantly is perspective in this story. Mm. Each each issue is narrated by a different um, a different perspective. You know, mm-hmm. it kind of goes back and forth mostly between Edwin and Charles. But then you yeah. get, I believe, issue five, which is Jai, which is just yeah. her perspective which immediately is like okay something's odd here because we haven't (laughs) gotten into the perspectives of them but throughout the story you not only get to see each one of our new groups yeah uh power sets but you also get to see their backstories and their backstories are deeply seated in the immigrant experience in the asian american experience and each one of them kind of represents not just a different path to be taken when it comes to being of mixed race but also the times that they were coming in yeah like very specifically melvin is from the 70s tanya's from the 90s and jai is from today and seeing their perspectives on each of these things is fascinating to me so i'm interested to get into your head on kind of building those characters for their specific worldview and how they were kind of brought into the story. Well, first of all, I'm so glad uh, that 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 you leaned in on on all that stuff and that you found all that sort of stuff interesting because that's definitely you know when DC when you know th- th- this came about because uh, I'm friends with Chris Conroy and he's like mm-hmm. I'm bringing back this I'm doing stuff with the Sandman universe. I'd love for you to like pitch something and because I am an editor first. I pitched him three ideas, two of which involved like my friends doing stuff. And then <laughs> one which involved me because I didn't really grasp like, oh no, you want me to do so. It's like, no, no, I talked to you because I want you to do. I just thought like you were talking to editor to editor. So I'm like, oh, you could have this person do this, this person do this, this person do this. And then I was just kind of like, or you can have me do dead boy detectives and I'll have him meet a bunch of Thai ghosts and I'll just be, and, and just show him like how scary ghosts can really be. And he's like, yes, I want that. And, and so and once that door was open, then it was like, oh wow, there's never really been anything tie in sort of American pop right. culture. And so the idea that I could do that was like, the, we had these wonderful, gorgeously gruesome variant covers by Alex X Van Lawn. Yes. And they ended up being sort of a a, a series, a, his series of different Thai ghosts done by a Western artist. And that's never really been done in right. like in the pop cultural setting. So for me, for the story, it was just like, oh, this was kind of a way to just talk about being Thai. and. I like the idea of like, let's talk about how the Thai experiences change in America for the past 50 to 60 years. Mm-hmm. And so part of that was going from the 70s to the 90s to now, I got this nice, you know, there's 20 uh, years between, two decades between each of the three characters. And I, you get to sort of see like, oh, when Melvin showed up in the 70s, people didn't really understand, people didn't know Thai was a thing. Right. So you just ended up being like, oh, I guess you're Chinese, I, you know, you know, and all that sort of stuff. You have the 90s, which is kind of closer to where I am, where, you know, th- you know, now it was Thai food and that's all, you know, it, it was right. this sort of, you know, kind of new thing. And now it's a little bit more sort of, it's a little bit more mainstream now. But, but even then, like, not just watching what Thailand is, but 
watching what its relationship with America mm. is like. And, you know, like when I was growing up, Thailand was seen as such a backwater kind of place. And now when I go back, it's just like, wow, their healthcare is better than our healthcare yeah. is. They're, you know, they're like, uh, you know, they have like the biggest malls in, in Southeast Asia or in Thailand. So mm -hmm. just to watch like how that relationship between two countries and the children in these two countries have changed is, uh, is, is I, I found really interesting and really fascinating. And, and one of the reasons why I wanted to do the book. Absolutely. And it, it shows very plainly in the differing perspectives of Tanya and Jai, because Tanya yeah. is, you know, the way that she dies, again, we won't go into spoilers, but she talks about her perceptions of Thailand because her yeah. parents want her, you know, want to take her back there. Yeah. And then you go to Jai's perspective at the time and she's like, yeah. this is the castle on the hill. Like yeah. everything yeah. is incredible there. She talks about yeah. the two biggest malls in the world are in Thailand yeah. and like the shifting perspective and the shifting uh, perception of not just the world around you, but the wider world yeah. is something that is so fascinating, something that you can do with characters that come from different eras. Yeah. And I think that was something that you took full advantage of, and it helps to push the, the conflict between all these yeah. characters, because they all have many, many conflicts, as kids do. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Melvin is just a little menace. Like, he's a little goblin <laughs> yeah. boy who constantly yeah. has to come up with dumb nicknames for everybody. My favorite <laughs> is he calls people Cheese Weasel. And yeah, he is, yeah. I'm just like, bring. we need to bring Cheese Weasel back. I don't know what, I don't know what we need to do to get this back in the public lexicon, but Cheese Weasel needs to be uh, everywhere. Also also, the way Hassan letters cheese weasel yes. too, like he just takes so much joy in the term. So wherever he's, it's bigger and it's bolder. It's and, almost like yeah. he's swearing. Like it's yeah, like yeah, a yeah. lot of time you'll see like all of the uh, the different symbols that are used in place of swear yeah. words in comics. It's like <laughs> yeah. cheese weasel. It's like yeah, yeah. you see like this big like letters showing up in animation. It would just be this gigantic <laughs> letters behind him with this like right. cheese weasel yeah. behind him, like. It's fascinating. And then you also, again, you get to see the conflicts between everybody. There's a great moment where Jai calls Melvin out and she's like, Tanya's doing this. Uh, Charles and Edwin are super helpful. What are you doing specifically? <laughs> and having all of them not only trying to solve this mystery, but also trying to kind of prove themselves to each other really does yeah. push forward that um that coming of age story and learning more about yourselves as you're learning more about the people around you. And that's what makes, I think, having an ensemble cast like this so fun because yeah. you get to, across the course of six issues, really delve into what makes these characters tick and why they work so well together. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, it's, uh, it, the, writing this book was so much fun. It, it was exactly kind of what I needed, uh, you know, just be to have that kind of fun with the characters, but also, with the team, God, I love working with everyone on this book. Like Jeff Stokely did this amazing job. Craig Telefer, who I've never seen inks more faithful than Craig's. It kind of Incredible, blew me away. Yeah. You know, I, Jeff had never been inked by anybody before. And I just, it, it, Craig's inks would come in and I just like, oh my God, it's like, it's like Jeff inked this himself. You know, <laughs> we got one issue by Javier Rodriguez, which is like oh. on my bucket list yeah. of like artists to work with, you know, Miguel Muerto, who colors Something's Killing the Children. He did some like fantastic stuff. Hassan, like Hassan's like, like, I don't know, he, I don't know if he's like um unsung because like everyone knows how good he is, but 
I don't think I understood the range I could go with this story until Hassan's right. letters came in. And he just added a whole different level. And he, he taught me just stuff like watching him work, taught me like how you can use lettering for comic effect and, and to emphasize comedic effect and, and all that. And Andrea Shea, who brought this whole team together and was like this complete joy to work with and is one of the best editors working right now. You know, Nimit Malavia, who is our cover artist, who is doing covers in that very classic oh Vertigo way. Yeah. And then Alex Ekman-Lawn, who's doing sort of this 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 series of Taiga. Like, it was just such a delightful experience working with everybody. There was not a, you know, a bad egg in the bunch. It was so, it was so delightful. And it's it's fascinating too because like you you know as as we've talked about before it takes a village to make a comic yeah and yeah. so getting all of these different people who kind of make this book sing I mean you and we talked about this with the uh, with the Good Asian as well mm -hmm. the variant cover situation with that book was yeah. phenomenal Thank and you. getting the highlight all of the different artists who maybe didn't get a chance to really like let it rip with variant yeah. covers before really go yeah. um and having those variant covers here but also allowing for like you said in the main covers kind of tying back to that to your vertigo roots yeah like yeah getting, no totally we talked about last time with you getting your start there and like yeah. having that kind of again come full circle with this and setting up these kids to go off on their next adventure but yeah there was we we talked about the um the cast and the incredible kids there was a notable absence in this book and she had been a mainstay in dbd stories before that being crystal palace yeah and i was very apprehensive when i started this book and crystal was not there i was <laughs> yeah. like where's crystal this yeah. is like a this is like le this is like taking out the scooby gang and not bringing scooby like what is yeah. what's happening here and initially there's and you do a great job of kind of slowly eking out like what exactly is going on with her and the idea of you showing the passage of time i think is something that's magical about this book in that again these kids are not gonna age they're not gonna grow yeah. older they've been dead for some time and you mentioned earlier about how the original dead boy detective stories were basically right after uh charles died yeah and so yep. he's kind of experiencing all of this stuff he's falling in love and he's dealing with these uh, these very new concepts and now yeah. you know nearly 30 years on he's trying to figure out okay what happens next because yeah. like you said and it when when you said the words how do you tell a coming of age story with kids who can't grow up like that's like a yeah. whiteboard like you write <laughs> yeah. that you circle it six times yeah, and you're like yeah. this is the game like what yeah. are we doing here having crystal not be part of the story up until a very brief moment where we get this moment of sadness with charles mm -hmm. i thought was really well done and showed again what you can do with the passage of time and how that can be really exciting by being able to introduce all these characters from various area areas but also really really sad because some people you know some people grow apart over time yeah, yeah. I mean, like, so I love the character of Crystal Palace. And for people who don't know, Crystal Palace was, uh, I think it was the 2012 edition, the year-long 
run of Dead Boy Detectives yeah. was introduced by the writer Toby Litt and the artist Mark Buckingham. And she's just this great character. Um, and, but then when I, so the conceit of the Sandman universe was sort of when I sort of joined on board was that like the Sandman universe kind of, uh, all, those, all the Sandman books happen in real time. Mm -hmm. And so James's books happen now. And it, it's part of the brilliance of, of the universe that Neil created that like, you don't really realize it because all the, so many of the characters are yeah. immortal. So, so I was kind of left with this thing. Like, okay, so if the books happen in real time, Edwin and Charles are obviously dead. What happens to Crystal? Like, is she, did she die at some point as a ghost? Did she, and then, and again, it became, and so I love that character and I would love to actually to do more with that character uh, because I don't actually see her story as apart from, from the, from the boys, mm -hmm. but then it became just like, well, what do we do? Like, that's a procedural hump now that I right. kind of have to sort of deal with. And then it was just like, well, you know, again, if we're, if the goal is to tell this coming of age story of uh, characters who don't grow up, then part of that is, oh, that's their first goodbye in a, mm -hmm. in a certain sense. And so one of the things we don't realize coming into this story is these are two characters who kind of had to say goodbye to their best friend. And there was, it was nobody's fault. They just grew up and they grew apart. And, but at the same time, that is a death in and of itself. The mm -hmm. absence of that friend is a death. And so in their own way, without re them realizing it, they are going through a little bit of a trauma. Right. And, and as this whole experience with these others goes, kind of helps them get over that trauma and get to sort of say like, okay, there is more for us. Um, you know, there's more for us uh, out there, you know, and, and we just have to learn. We are these characters who have, who have always been best friends. We've, we've been together forever and we have to kind of accept change and we have to kind of wrap our heads around that things are different now than they were. And that's kind of what the story is about in so many ways is how these dead children who, whose lives don't change have to learn how to accept change. And I think that's something that isn't immediately, it isn't immediately put in front of the story at the yeah. outset. It's not yeah. immediately the story of like, hey, they need to learn that sometimes you need to let things go to grow. Yeah. And yeah. I love the idea of, um, of Crystal Palace kind of having this almost kids next door thing yeah. where it's like she grew up and all of a sudden she kind of forgets about everything that's happened yeah. and it's like there's i'm sure there's a story later down the line of them having to come back to her and her being like oh yeah. my god this happened yeah but like having you know kids who are like them having ghosts yeah. that can go on the adventures they have and they can have different abilities that will make them doing their detective work easier also allows them to like you said kind of heal some of that trauma yeah. And even though not all of the ghosts make it out of this story, um, having characters like that and having characters like Dom, who I, right. I really love Dom. Yeah, I, for the life of me, I wish we had gotten more time with him because he <laughs> seems just like the most wonderful kooky man. Um, just being kind of this wrangler of ghosts, like yeah. I'm just a guy. And I'm trying to figure out all this supernatural ghost stuff. You can, you kids can live in my house. Yeah, uh, he was yeah. he was wonderful, and again, it speaks to kind of the strength of this cast, Thank bringing you. all these you know disparate ideologies together on how they view the world and watching yeah. them grow and change due to the events of the story. Yeah, yeah, no, Dom Dom was wonderful. I 
I mean, I could have done a series about Dom. I, I'm like, this sure. Young, this <laughs> youngish, uh, you know, uh, like ghost doctor. In, in Thailand, the word for witch doctor is ghost doctor. And so mm-hmm. he, and so, you know, his job in, when he was in America, he had this sort of like this, this, uh, I don't know what you would call it, this, this history, this talent uh, that, that was in sort of his family. And then along with Thailand has the largest, uh, if, if LA has the largest population of, of Thai people second to Thailand, then they need someone spiritual there to kind right. of get rid of all sort of the spirits. And so that's what he was called upon to do. And he would just do that for the local LA community. Mm-hmm. And because I knew that his time in the book is not long, there was a little bit of just like, okay, he needs to make an impression when when he's there. And just the idea of leading into the fact that like, oh no, he's like a, just a modern guy. yeah. And, but he just happens to have all this stuff that comes from his family and all that sort of stuff. So that was a really fun, that was really, really fun. Well, he definitely made an impression. And I, cool. I again, I, I remember feeling really torn up about him yeah. getting torn up. Um, but there's, there's something really magical about that kind of reveal of him, you know, they're going through the narration. He's like, I'm going to keep you kids safe. Like, I know what's going on. We're going to figure this out together. Him walking into the room and just going, oh, like that's, (laughs) oh my God, one of the best page turns I've seen in a horror book. I was like, oh my God, it was, um, again, it was magical and having a story, you know, kind of again, very stranger things in that way, taking any kind of guidance or any kind of promises of safety away from the kids. So they have to go and figure this out themselves, ups the stakes, ups the drama of it, and forces them to be in a position of a comfortability, which is where every good story happens. Yeah, totally, totally. It's all kind of you know, woven in throughout the story and we don't really see it come to a head until the big climax. But you mentioned her before, Thessaly is this kind of looming character over the whole thing. Yes. And having her come in from, you know, like you said, a separate story, get the advancement she needs before she moves on into the next story. Really fascinating in the way that you used her was she awesome? was she part of the original idea for this yeah definitely definitely sort of from the get-go you know it was this idea of that there were a couple people sort of in that slot and trying oh, to figure out who the right person should be yeah. and then when i found out what james's plans were i was like oh my god this is this uh, this is so cool to be able to do this because that's i think that's the other wonderful thing about the sandman universe is like i said it's the most inclusive uh mythology and sort of pop culture mm-hmm. and it is a place where you can kind of do your own thing but still be the whole conception is being part of a bigger thing does not disqualify you from your own sort of uniqueness or any, or anything like that. Right. And so the idea that I could tell a story that's very personal to me and have it intersect with a story that's clearly very personal to James, mm-hmm. and yet it doesn't compromise either of our stories. Like, I just thought that was so cool. And Thessaly as a character is so cool. Like, you know, it, he she obviously captured James's imagination right. and I'm such a fan of her as well. And, and it, again, it's such a great, you know, I believe it was a game of you. That's where she was introduced. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's some, you know, you talk, you know, writing classes, they talk about defining character through action and all that. And for hers, it's so good. She's like, oh, she was willing to bring the moon to the earth and cause all this damage to the earth yeah. because she wanted revenge because someone tried to kill her. She's going to kill them back and she's willing to destroy the entire earth 
just to get revenge. Like it says everything you need to know about that character. <laughs> and and so the chance that you have to play with her for a little bit was so much fun. And it allows for this character who is very well defined to be surprised yeah. as yeah. well. Like there's the there's the moment where they get this conversation with her in issue six where she's she's presenting them with a choice. It's an ultimatum. Yeah. You you have to make this choice. You can either sacrifice yourself, or you can sacrifice the new friends you've made. This is what you've yeah. got. These are the choices yeah. you have. And when they show the bonds that they have built together you see her kind of get surprised yeah. and she's like wait a second okay maybe we can rewrite the rules here what's yeah. what's the i don't I know mean, what's going to happen next but this is very exciting for me personally as yeah. a third party who's been sitting in this circle of uh golden blocks for a little bit here you kids are yeah. you the kids are all right the kids are all right yeah i mean and that very much was the the attitude and, and the inspiration of the book was just honestly, you know, me being so impressed by this new generation that's sort of coming up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and, and I think it's sort of interesting too, because if you look at Sandman and when it came up, that's a Gen X book, right? Yes. And so it's a Gen X book with, and that is a generation that came up with government has let us down, tune in and turn, turn out and to, you know, tune out and all that kind of stuff. We're just going to be apathetic to everything. And now you have this generation that's outright, that's that's young right now. And there's like, no, this isn't good enough. We need to do better. And and they're doing actual things in the world to that yeah. that change that to change the world. And so 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 much of this book too was this perspective of, and I think you got to see it through the boys' interactions with Thessaly, mm -hmm. of these the older people being like, the world is is what it is. And you're just gonna have to deal with that. And then, then you had this younger generation come along and so it's like, maybe it isn't. Maybe there are options and maybe you've just gotten so used to all the things you can't change, you started to ignore the things that you can. And that's so much about sort of like what the what's at play in the book, too, of these kids just and it's me just being inspired by this younger generation of these kids just saying, like, we don't think what we're being told is all we have is actually all we have. We think there's more here and we don't know what more is, but I think we want to see. Yeah. And and it's, you know, it's everyone being surprised together about like what comes next. Absolutely. And that's, that's something that I really loved Im immediately about the book and loved even more across the course of the six issues is that yes, there is a detective aspect of this, of course, and it's very well done as we've seen you do before. Yes, <laughs> there is this incredible horror aspect of it brought to life by Jeff Stokely, by Javier Rodriguez, by all of the artists, inkers, letters that are involved in this. But at the heart of it, it's a very personal story about yeah. people learning how to change and people learning yeah. how to grow. And yeah. In all of that, each of these characters going on a journey, there is um, there's this beautiful story of people learning to accept that change is okay and learning yeah. that they can evolve. There's yeah. this through line running underneath it of Edwin trying to yeah. figure out his feelings for Charles. Yes. And I have, I have been in love with like that idea for a very mm. long time and i was yeah. so glad to see it here cool, utilized and utilized in a way that felt very real and very personal to that character because he doesn't understand it 
and him yeah. trying to work through those feelings while also the Tanya of it all with Charles yeah. and then weirdly with Edwin and how those kind of ideas attract. I thought it was fascinating. And again, watching all of these kids, these kids, as we talked yeah. about, yes, they're ghosts. Yes, they've been around for a long time. Um, some more than others. Jay's just, or Jay's just recently a ghost. Yeah. But all of them learning how to figure out, okay, what is, what is my deal? Yeah. And like having that across and watching them try to come to terms with their perception of themselves and maybe yeah. that perception being wrong, I thought was fascinating. And it really pulls all of those ideas into a very well-paced, a very well-orchestrated and a personal story. Thank you. Thank you. I fell in love, both me and Jeff, you could tell it from the art, like both me and Jeff fell in love with Edwin sort of very, very yes. quickly, you know, and I always feel like, you know, in, in, in traditionally in the stories, Charles is the more adventurous one. So right. Edwin doesn't get the chance to shine sort of as much. But I think because of that, I think both me and Jeff liked him because of that. Like he was, <laughs> yeah. the, he is not sort of like the heroic to the standard heroic one. And, but this idea too, that I just kind of love and, and you know, a part of it was that you know, the other thing about the Dead Boy Detectives is they are going to be having a show that is start off on HBO right. Max. Now it's going to be on Netflix. And now with the writer strikes over, the, the showrunners of that can sort of finish that show. And I know just enough tidbits about that to say I'm so – people are going to lose their minds oh, uh, so when that show comes. So it's I, some of the things I know that's happening, people are going to lose their minds. Hell yeah. And I'm so excited about it. And um, But but the, in that, and because the characters were introduced in Doom Patrol, that one – the, the, in that version, the characters are older. They're in their teens. Right. And Edwin there is in love with with Charles. Mm -hmm. And so then the question became, well, like, and that's always been kind of hinted. Like, right. you never really yeah. knew in the comics, like, is that what's going on here or not? And so to know that, like, okay, that's a teenage version of them. Then it was just like, okay, so where do we sit? Because they're 12 or 13. Like, right. you know, like, and to me, one of the great things about Ed, Edwin and things I love about the character is that he is perpetually 12. He can't grow up, but the same. So listen, you think, you, you know, we've seen people, we all know people in lives who spent decades trying to figure out their sexuality. Right. You know, Edwin, you know, grew up in the early 20th century. He doesn't have the concept of sexuality in the Kinsey scale that we do. Mm -hmm. And now he's thrust to sort of figure out his sexuality, but he's 12 and he's never going to grow out of being <laughs> yeah. 12, you know? So he's there. It's just like, he, and, and he's at that point of just like, to what degree do sexual feelings even sort of come into play sort of right. for him? So he doesn't, am I bisexual? Am I asexual? Am I straight? Uh, he has no idea. He has no language, you know, to sort of, of to, to do all this. So he his has this huge long running story of him with the, with the emotion of a 12 year old trying to figure out like, what do I like? And what is my sexuality? And so part of like what I, what I liked the, the story to be for Edwin was kind of like this, as these all these characters dealing with change, mm -hmm. he is kind of also for the first time realization change of like, oh, I've never in my entire friendship with Charles, I've never liked girls. Like, what's yeah. going on with that? You know? And then like, oh, and now a girl likes me. And maybe I didn't like girls because no girl ever liked me. And so now a girl likes me. Like, does this mean I like girls? Or does this mean I like, you know, or does this mean I like boys? Or do I like both boys and girls? Or do I not like either of them? Right. And and I've got the emotional capacity of a 12 year old to try to sort of figure all this out. So there's such a great, I think there's such a great long story to be told about Edwin, about just him as a perpetual 12 year old, just trying to figure out his emotions and trying to wrap his head around the what 
what we now know as such a how complex gender identity is. Mm -hmm. And so I and so just to be able to start that journey for him, I just thought was such a great opportunity. And it's it's true because like it has always kind of been this underlying idea. And at the same time of, you know, Edwin being this this kid that we see constantly he's also in a very like in a very relatable way to me this little crotchety old man who's also just like (laughs) yeah i'm just i'm just a guy i just i don't understand these kids but i'm trying (laughs) and him trying to like learn across time and having this almost in a way very uh doctor who-esque way of him trying to be like okay now is now then was then these are the things that i understand now these are the things i still have to learn it's fascinating and having that juxtaposed with this character who unlike edwin does not look before he leaps in charles being this character who's like my heart tells me to go one way and I'm yeah. 100% going there without any next thought. Yeah. Having him also n- then become a character who is dealing with complicated feelings of his own, the feelings yeah. of loss, the feelings of yeah. being left behind, which is yeah. just as visceral, if not more than losing someone, yep. Yep. is being left behind. Yeah. And yeah. him having complicated feelings about that, the scene where he goes to try and find crystal palace is heartbreaking (laughs) and i all of it's juxtaposed with this you know this thing that he has to go through where he is corrupted by the spirits that are going on in the story and watching him have to also (laughs) deal with these things completely unaware of what edwin is going through in this story again provides some of this wonderful dramatic irony of the two of them and having the two um lead perspectives throughout the story and again the uh the issues being from the journal of edwin from the journal of charles and knowing that these are their perspectives and watching you know charles saying yeah i don't know what's going on with edwin he's been (laughs) really weird i'm not really understanding what's going on and then knowing as a reader you fool he's in love or maybe he (laughs) isn't we don't know it's it's wonderful and it keeps you engaged with these characters alongside all of the mystical spooky stuff that they're trying to not be erased by and and that was also one of the gifts of the book too where you know, because it's a story you can only tell with like dead kids and yes. kids who don't grow up, where it's just like, oh no, he's in love, except he might not be because he doesn't really know. But there's a chance he might. <laughs> and and if he love? is, he's really going through this. And yet, like all this sort of stuff. And it's just like all this wonderful, messy ambiguity where you can almost have it both ways. You can have this mm-hmm. like unrequited love story, even as the character himself is like, but am I in love? Like, is this, like, I don't actually know. Like, maybe this is just really intense friendship. Like, he doesn't know any of those things because he's just 12 and he's still trying to figure it out. And it's one of the gifts, I think, of meeting, like, you know, having an older, in in the television show, he's older and he's a teenager. And and you gain a lot of stuff by even even telling stories as a teenager. Yeah. But, but, But the things that you gain from having him 12, like, if a 17 year old says, like, oh, I'm into boys now, you're like, okay. If a 12 year old says like, oh, I'm into boys, you're like, but are you sure? Do you, are you, you don't want to, you, maybe mm-hmm. you want to take more time. Are you sure? Maybe you are sure. I don't know. But right. it, 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 it's, you know, and so to have Edwin kind of be in that position where 
he doesn't really know because he's not at that emotionally mature age where he knows. And again, I know people in their 20s and 30s who are still trying to you know, process right. all of this. Of so to process this when you're 12 and you don't you have no awareness of the Kinsey scale because that was not a thing when you were growing up. <laughs> like that is fascinating to me. And I think that's such a it's such an interesting journey to explore. Absolutely. And it gives an extra layer for these characters while they're also trying to survive yeah. Rasu hunting yeah. them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. With this story, again, it's a I think one of the best Dead Boy Detective stories I've read and something that is very, again, speaking to me as an Asian American, having that experience and being able to finally see myself in like characters that I've loved and adored for years. I mean, what is not to love about Charles and Edwin? But having these characters alongside new characters and you know, introducing the mythology by the end of the story, there is a world of possibilities that you open yeah. up, which is yeah. fascinating to me. And I'm like, yeah. when are we getting to Dead Boy Detectives <laughs> 2? What are we doing? Give me the next one. Like, yeah. it's it's wonderful and in a way that is so unique to this story. And also, like you said, unique to the Sandman universe being so yeah. inclusive and giving yeah. creators the opportunity to stretch and grow the mythology and so it's genuinely a wonderful story and i had such a blast not just reading it but rereading it and then getting to discuss it with you um it's it's just it's a fantastic story and i hope there's i hope there's more in the future for sure i would i would love to i mean i know that you know the the rollout of the 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 book was interesting because i think there was a hope that it would, you know, when it was rolling out, it would tie sort of into the television show, the release of the TV show. Right. But then that with the HBO Max of it all going to Netflix mm-hmm. and then the strike happening, that all sort of got extended. So we'll see. I mean, like, I, I think we're going to we're still trying to see what the and the trade being Sandman books in general tend to do better in trades than mm-hmm. sort of serialized. So I think there's the 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 big sort of question is if there are going to be more dead boy detective stories, how well the book does, how well the show does and all that kind of stuff. And then there's always, for me, there's always the added complication of just like my stupid schedule and like, how can I, you know, squeeze in six issues here and there. But I, if the book has taught me anything, if I've taken anything away from the book is this philosophy that endings are new beginnings. And so, and so part of the ending for dead boy detectives it felt right to like well it should end with a new beginning it should yeah. end with okay there's a really great and there's so many really great stories to tell so I, whether i'm telling them or not it hopefully it sets the stage for a lot of really great stories to be told uh mm-hmm. within this sort of fascinating corner of the universe because the other thing that i kind of found in my you know rereading on sandman which i was actually shocked by is that the sandman mythology definitely does stuff with ghosts, but doesn't do, do that much. And so right. Dead Boy Detectives can kind of own that piece of the Sandman universe is the ghost piece, which I find super fascinating. So, uh, so yeah, so hopefully there's, you know, whether it's me, it's not, there's hopefully a lot of interesting places for people to go. And if there's one thing that you, the listener, should take from that, it's that y'all need to go out and buy the trade when it comes out, probably next week. Uh, <laughs> we're recording this a little in advance, so we're, we're trying to figure out time scales. Um, but you need to read it. It's incredible. Obviously, when the show does come out, now that we've got the writer's strike, they're able to continue um, 
developing that and hopefully when the sag strike ends we can start making it and really like digging into this it's a it's a world of possibilities as you stated because there are so many stories left to tell and that's something that's magical about i mean just ghost stories in general but also what you've done with this i think there's anytime you're wading into like a wider mythology with introducing new characters and we've seen that recently a lot with new characters has been fascinating yeah people bringing in new characters dc comics also yep. dealing with ghosts i mean spirit yep. world is one of my favorite yep. books that's going yep. on right now yep. um it's it's an incredible story to follow when we know that oh these are characters that we haven't met before or right. these are characters that we know and love but they're being introduced to new concepts yeah it's being additive and that's yep. something that allows this universe to continue to grow and so again listener i have to and i i have to i'm i'm gonna make a promise here if you don't buy this trade when it comes out i will be in your walls i will be my own kind of thai ghost and i will jump in there i'll, I'll be a filipino ghost for, for me uh and i will climb in your walls until you uh until you go buy this trade but and you mentioned again incredibly busy you're doing yeah. all kinds of i don't know if you know this but portsock pachet show is a hot ticket right now <laughs> anytime you see him pop up somewhere it is appointment viewing i uh, <laughs> i attended a um a talk that he did uh earlier this year along with uh rena ayu yang to yeah. uh to promote a book that i also fell in love with and yeah He's a popular guy, folks. He's 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 a busy dude. So <laughs> the fact that you were able to not just pump out an incredible story, but also to come and talk to me about it, it was it's amazing. And you also seem to be doing something very exciting with the Good Asian. We noticed. Yes, yes, yes. So I am adapting the Good Asian for television. Uh, and and you know that's we'll see what becomes of that because yeah. it's a whole wild crazy world especially after the strike right uh, but i am in the process of adopting that as a te- television show i'm working with uh the studio mrc that that is yes. created the studio behind my mom's favorite television show ozark if she was very happy <laughs> <laughs> she loves screwed up families yeah she loves things about screwed up families <laughs> uh and and uh atomic monster which is yeah. james Wan production company and i'm an enormous fan of james so getting to work with him and his people has sort of, it's been amazing as well as the folks at Three Arts and we're adapting it and we'll see, you know, we'll see what becomes of the, anytime you're adapting anything for media, it's it's a lottery of the, a if lot, it gets across yeah. the, a finish line or not. So we'll see if what happens to that, if anything, but as of now I'm adapting it and we'll, we'll see what happens. And just remember when that does become a smash success that you, that, that Portsock Pachacho took the time to listen, to come on this podcast. <laughs> Just remember that. Remember that. Uh, but, and yeah. I'm also very excited that I, I, I can't tease much, but I, I, I will tease for the first time. I think next year I will have two different comics projects. Sort of ah, out. Yes. Uh, and I'm really, I'm really, really excited. I can't say what they are yet, but, um, Understandable. but they should be, uh, yeah, they, I think both will be surprises in different ways. Hell uh, yeah. So, yeah. Well, if, if there's one thing that I know is that when your name pops up on a book, that is a must buy for me. And I appreciate you coming on always. Uh, it's We had a great conversation about Good Asian last year. We had a 
wonderful conversation about Dead Boy Detectives this year. So we might have to make this an annual thing. Hey, I can. I'm always up for it. I'm always up for it. So um, if our listeners want to follow up with you and continue with your adventures, uh, where can they find you? Yeah. Uh, okay. To make things as complicated as possible, I, I am it. at real underscore porn sack on Twitter, real underscore PSAC on uh, Instagram, and just porn sack on Blue Sky. Hell yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm loving seeing the the slow move to blue sky. It's making yeah. me very excited. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah. But yeah, again, wonderful talking to you as always. Uh, go out and buy this trade. You will not be disappointed. It is a wonderful, not just addition to the Sandman universe, but also just a wonderful story about growing up for kids who can't grow up. And <laughs> I just, again, whiteboard, circle it six times. <laughs> this is, uh, yeah, it, it's it's been wonderful. I'm so glad we got to talk about this. And hopefully the adventures of two dead boys solving mysteries will continue. Time is everything. It is now time for the Weekly Review. This is the segment of our show where I'll be reviewing something weekly. And this week we are reviewing episode number three of Loki entitled 1983. And y'all, we back up. I I spoke last week about being a little put off by episode two and not really feeling like it was connected and I kind of got disrupted with my connection of it. Um... This week does not have that problem. This week continues the plot forward while giving us little bits and pieces, tidbits to chew on, and giving us the return of one Jonathan Majors into the plot as Victor Timely. Uh, This was interesting. You know, we've talked before about uh, how important the character of Kang is to not just this show, but to the entire next couple of phases. And so I was curious how they were going to utilize him. Because if you go back and you listen to our Kang episode, if you want to know about Kang, that's the episode to go to. It gives you the full breakdown of his story. You know that Victor Timely is just an identity that Kang throws on after being defeated and thrown into the time stream. This is not that. This is a variant of Kang who the character He Who Remains has kind of enlisted to be part of a causal loop where he has manipulated Ravana Renslayer, who returns in this episode as well, as well as Miss Minutes to deposit a manual, OB's manual for the TVA into the hands of Kid Victor Timely. Uh, I believe in sometime in the 1870s. And then we flash forward to 1893 at the World's Fair, which I absolutely love. Making the, I don't know why, but making the setting of the episode Chicago rather than the kind of more or less uh, over, I don't want to say overplayed, but maybe overexposed. Uh, New York City is... Refreshing, And even though this was obviously a period piece, I feel like we should get more shows or more Marvel 
MCU stuff that features locations and main locations that aren't New York City or some, you know, big old place. You know, Marvel is supposed to be the world outside our window, and it's not just the world outside of New York. So I thought that was pretty cool. Loki and Mobius are on the hunt, not just for the variant of He Who Remains, but also, of course, Ravana and Miss Minutes. And Ravana and Miss Minutes are really the stars of this episode. Ravana Renslayer is incredible in this. Um, I think that she is way she was way undersold in the first season. I'm glad that we're getting a little bit more meat on the bones with her performance and her involvement in this season. But holy shit, Miss Minutes was a tour de force. I can't really speak to the, you know, the actress herself because of things that have happened and have been said. You can look it up if you want. But the performance here is immaculate. Miss Minutes has this weird and crazy obsession with He Who Remains and all of his various uh, his various variants. And so watching her slowly become more and more unhinged as the episode goes on was an absolute delight. And all the while, Loki and Mobius are just trying to catch up to everybody. I liked the moment where uh, they find the three big carvings of... Uh, of Odin, Thor, and Balder the Brave, who I I think if you are unfamiliar with Norse mythology, you would not know is the other son of Odin. And who, it's rumored, Daniel Craig was going to play in Multiverse of Madness before that got nixed. Now, Loki being excluded from this I thought was hilarious, but also, there's an interesting little... Uh, a little line here that I don't think was necessarily a dig or a reference, but was more, you know, in that, but it could absolutely be read that way. And it's how I read it the first time where he looks like, how can you, you know, whittle down an entire culture into like a display piece, essentially, which may have been an interesting shot at the numerous stage plays in the Taika Waititi Thor films. Again, I don't think it was intentional, but I just thought it was funny. And watching them play catch up and ultimately having them run into Victor Timely, who is a very interesting character. I like that he is wholly different from Kang and He Who Remains. It's very interesting. He felt, and this maybe it's just because I have this, you know, I have this on the brain right now because of reasons, but he felt like a Doctor Who villain or a Doctor Who guest star. Like, this felt like, and we've talked about this before, the Doctor Whoification of Loki, but this truly did feel like a Doctor Who episode, and I was fascinated by the idea of that. And so uh, Victor Timely, who is kind of a, a, a huckster of sorts, creating ideas and creating prototypes for machines that do not work and then you know finessing people out of their hard-earned money or you know it's the hard-earned money that other people made for them in this certain case of a couple of aristocrats and businessmen there but i liked him kind of being a trickster in the way that loki was and you could see that loki was impressed by this as well and so we get a chase scene which is really fun it all ends up in a ferris wheel car where Sylvie is there to kill Victor Timely and the 
usage of that I thought was really, really well done. Um, again, paralleling the end of last season and showing Sylvie's growth as a character. I still wish we had gotten more time to show that growth, but I do like that we're seeing it in real time. So the episode ultimately ends with Sylvie confronting uh, Renslayer after she is able to, after she's been betrayed by Miss Minutes and Victor Timely, shows up with a prototype of the, um, of the, it's not the Purge batons, but um, you know what I'm talking about. And the pruning rods. And she is ultimately uh, defeated by Sylvie and kicked into the, realm i guess of he who remains right in the office with the roof blown open and his dead body sitting there and so as it's kind of coming to a close victor timely is brought back to the tva to try and help them figure out how to repair the um the big old time loom or the temporal loom and miss minutes drops a little cliffhanger for us where she's like i know secrets about you and i know a very big secret about you that you are going to be very angry about. And that's where the episode ends. So I really dug this. I felt like it was a return to form for the show with the previous season as well as the first episode of this season. I like that episode two feels like a fluke, which is a good feeling right now. We'll see if the rest of the season ends up being that way, but I am invested, I am excited, and I cannot wait to watch next week's episode. So that is going to do it for the weekly review for this week. Tune in next week for episode number four. But for now, let's roll right on into this week's Comics Countdown. Ooh, welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I'll chat you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week, whether it's at your local comic book shop, a comicsology, or however you get your comics. These are the ones you should definitely take a look at. Before we get into this week's books, though, we got to take a look back at last week's books with the Geek Explain Pick of the Week of last week. And y'all, this was tough. So many good books came out last week, and I was just drowning in good stories. Ultimately, though, if I'm thinking about it, I'm going to have to go with Daredevil number two. And I didn't think that was going to be the one I picked. Um, big shout out to Jay Garrick, The Flash, as well as World's Finest, both of which I absolutely adored with my whole freaking heart. And Superman, I believe number seven, was a wonderful little anniversary issue that gave us clues for what's coming next. But there is something about this Daredevil story right now. I don't know what it is. I am really, really keyed into it. So uh, that's last week's books. This week we've got 10 books, double digits again, uh, to talk about. So let's dive right in with a brand new number one, that being Amazon's Attack number one. This is written by Josie Campbell with art by Vasco Georgiev, two creators who I am insanely big fans of and i am super stoked to read this so let's just dive right into the synopsis after the shocking events in wonder woman the amazons are now fighting for a world that no longer wants them led by their fearless queen nubia a ragtag group of amazons featuring wonder girl and faruka too 
Farouk II, frantically searches for answers as their existence and way of life are threatened. Will the tribe survive their new reputation? Find out in this roller coaster of a debut issue. Brought to you by Rising Stars, Josie Campbell and Vasco Georgiev, this series promises to be an action-packed adventure featuring the greatest warrior women in the DCU. And those are not the only two characters who are on this cover and will be featured in this book. I mentioned Queen Nubia already, but they are also going to be joined by Mary Marvel, which I am stoked on. I really dig Mary becoming kind of part of the Wonder family. I don't know why no one, including myself, had ever thought of this before, but it's a wonderful, wonderful idea. And seeing her kind of get integrated over the last year has been really cool. So if you are reading and enjoying Wonder Woman, and we'll get to that in just a second, don't you worry. Uh, this is definitely going to be a great companion piece for that. Next up, we have Captain America number two. This is written by JMS, J. Michael Straczynski, with art by Jesus Saez. And I really loved that first issue. Look, I get it. Just off the bat, I understand making Steve Rogers landlord lefty capital cap uh, might ruffle feathers and it might not be the greatest use of this character. However, we did do a landlord tenant thing with Hawkeye in the mid, you know, 2010s during maybe his most iconic modern run so that worked out pretty well i think so we should just give this a shot i'm giving it a shot i know the talent involved with this i don't know them but i'm familiar with them and i know that they put out quality stuff so i'm in for the ride if i proved wrong i'm happy to admit i'm wrong but let's just let's let's just give it some more issues before we judge the entire series off of one issue that being said let's dig into the synopsis when Spider-Man interrupts Date Night to ask for help taking down the Sinister Six's latest plot, Captain America begrudgingly obliges. Meanwhile, more and more of Steve's former enemies are being recruited by a mysterious new threat. One seemingly connected to an enemy Steve faced long before he picked up the shield. So this is interesting, right? Because I feel like cat books have kind of a pattern to them. You have like a big, bombastic, you know line redrawing kind of run for the character and then you follow it up with kind of a more introspective a more personal a more intimate story with the character we saw this with the whole secret empire plot and then the follow-up uh wade insomni run that short-lived run that i wish had gone on longer and then now we've got the big hive mind run that just ended and now this seems to be more of a street level more intimate steve story if i'm wrong i'm wrong but i do feel like that is kind of the pattern but anyway again i'm interested in this i'll keep reading this until it gives me a reason not to next up we have Vor Void Rivals number five. This is written by Robert Kirkman with art by Lorenzo De Felici. And I mean, this book, this book's really good. I don't know what to tell you guys. It's, it's really freaking good. So y'all should be reading it. If you are into this Energon universe and you're picking up Transformers and you're picking up other stuff, but you're not picking up Void Rivals that kicked off this whole thing. What are you doing? What are you doing? Read Void Rivals. It's amazing. But let's dig into the synopsis. Explore the Energon universe. When Derek and Salila's return to the Sacred Ring doesn't go as planned, a new danger enters their lives. 
yeah, I'm into this. I love the world building. I love the two societies and how both different and similar they are. Can't wait to pick this up. Next up, we have Action Comics number 1058. This is written by Philip Kennedy Johnson, as well as, let me pull this up, <sighs> Greg Hahn and Gene Loon Yang, with art by Travis Mercer, Victor Bogdanovich, as well as Rafa Sandoval. And y'all, I've been waiting for it. And Kenan is back. Superman of China! New Superman is here! He's getting a story with the original team behind him. I can't wait to read this. Seeing him pop up in Superman number 7 is cool, um, but I am excited to have him front and center once again. So let's dive into the synopsis. Superman versus Clark Kent. When the mysterious young Nora Stone drains Superman's strength and unleashes an imposter tyrant Superman on Metropolis in his place, a powerless Clark Kent is forced to face the monster alone. Who is Nora Stone, and can Clark protect his identity while fighting this impossible battle? Also, featuring Gene Lun Yang and Victor Bogdanovich's return to the Superman of China. I'm so excited about this. Ah, I'm kind of sad that we're not getting a variant cover that has Kenan front and center. We did get one issue, I believe maybe it was the last issue or the previous issue, that did have him there though. So, y'all are right for now, but we were going to... Better be getting one of those cutting covers soon, okay? But I'm excited. Can't wait to pick this up. Next up, another brand new number one. This is Captain Marvel number one. This is written by absolute rock star Alyssa Wong with art by Jan Bezaldwa. I love this creative team. I cannot tell you how much I love this creative team. It is wonderful. We're getting a revamp for Carol. We're getting a new costume based on her uh, Hellfire Gala stuff. I am really, really interested to see what they do. Alyssa Wong could do no wrong. Let's just put that out there. I am fully willing to make that a hashtag, make that a saying. I'll put that on a shirt. Alyssa Wong can do no wrong. I love everything that I've read from them, and I will continue to pick up everything that they put out because they are wonderful. So let's dig into the synopsis and find out where we find Carol Danvers. Highest, furthest, fastest. The captain gets a permanent glow-up designed by superstar artist Jen Bartel. And that's not all that's changed. Brand new look, brand new creative team, and a brand new status quo. Carol Danvers is one of the, mo is one of the powerhouses of the Marvel Universe, a woman capable of harnessing the energy of the sun. So if you're coming for Earth, she's the first one you take off the board. Someone's figured out how to do just that. Introducing a new supporting cast and villains both beloved and dangerously fresh, Alyssa Wong and Jan Bezaldwa's exhilarating series kicks off here. Y'all go read this. It's going to be good. Next up, we have Green Arrow number five. Fitting thematically. We'll talk more about that later. Uh, written, of course, by Joshua Williamson with art by Shawnee Zaxe and Phil Hester. It's good. 
is good stuff. We're continuing the return of Oliver Queen. I don't know how many issues are in this. I think it's like seven, I want to say. Maybe I'm wrong. We'll find out. But I'm very intrigued by this cover where it shows all the different versions of Oliver Queen, including the year one version, which we talked about last week in the Geek Explained Book Club. More on that later. But I am super stoked. Let's see where Ollie finds himself here. Past present and future Oliver Queens fight for who gets to return home. But at what cost? Arsenal and Black Canary are joined by an unlikely ally in their hunt for Amanda Waller, and they uncover a large piece of the Dawn of DC puzzle. So yeah, this is also being written by Joshua Williamson, so there is a certain amount of connectivity and importance that this series has just beyond bringing Oliver Queen back, but I am really stoked to see what comes of this. This is going to be one to look out for. Next up, we have The Immortal Thor number three. This is written by Al Ewing with art by Martin Cocholo. I want to say, if I pronounce that incorrectly, I apologize. Uh, We found out recently, just as a tangent for Al Ewing, that uh, he's going to be leaving the X-Books next year, along with a bunch of uh, the creators after the fall of X. I don't know how to feel about that. It looks like it's going to be one unifying vision under editor Tom Brevoort, but I I don't know. I feel like a reboot or a reset would be disingenuous to the growth and the journey that these characters in this corner of the Marvel Universe has made, but I guess we'll just have to see. But back to Thor, back to books that Al Ewing is 100% in charge of. I love this book, and I am excited to see where Ewing brings Thor on this journey that he's on, so let's dig into the synopsis. Thor in the Wilderness. As Toranos hunted him across the stars, the Odinson found himself trapped, marooned in a puzzle the size of a planet. In this place, the Allfather's crown and even his own godly strength availed him nothing. What power, then, would save him? This is the story of the immortal Thor and the time of the trickster's test. So... You read that and you think immediately, oh, that's Loki. But also, we know that there are other trickster gods and trickster gods that were higher than we know. So I am stoked to pick this up. This book has been wonderful. Next up, we have another brand new number one with Alan Scott, the Green Lantern number one. This is written by Tim Sheridan with art by Sian Tormi. And this completes our trifecta of JSA Spotlight books. We had Sandman, we had Jay Garrick Flash last week, and now we have Alan Scott, Green Lantern. Really excited about this. Let's just waste no time and get into the synopsis. A powerful tale of Alan Scott's early days as Green Lantern. Alan Scott's early days as the Green Lantern are seen in a new light. The Green Lantern is the most powerful member of the JSA, beloved by all of America, but his personal life is a well-kept secret. This is a story about love, about fear, and most of all, about courage to stand up to that fear. Alan Scott's past is the key to his future when the Red Lantern appears, ready to strike down the mighty Green Lantern. So this is interesting. The synopsis, I think, leads you to kind of believe that this is going to be a past story, unlike with Jay and Wesley, whose stories very much deal in the present day. But... I'm not sure. This is part of that big, you know, new golden age uh, 
initiative by Jeff Johns, which I guess he's not going to be around defending anymore because he's left. But I am curious to see what this does to differentiate from the other two books. So far, they've been doing really good about telling two different, very different stories. So I'm really excited. I love Alan Scott, and I'm glad he's getting his own book. Next up, we have Firepower number 28. This is written, of course, by Robert Cook Kirkman with art by Chris Somney. Double the Kirk! Double the Kirkman this week. Really excited. I love this book, even though it is bittersweet for me since I know that we've only got two more issues after this. This cover rules. I mean, it's Owen standing against the dragon. I just, I love this book so much. I wish it was going for 100 issues. But I understand that we got to ramp things up. Kirkman's got his Energon stuff that he's in charge of now. So I get it. I understand. I'm sad about it, but I get it. Let's dig into the synopsis. The Johnson family finally return home, but what will they find when they arrive? This is, you know, this is the home stretch. We've got two more issues after this, both of which I'm sure are going to be action-packed. It's time. It's time to enter the final stage, and I can't wait to pick this up. But the big book of the week, the book I think you should absolutely be picking up, is Wonder Woman number two. This is written by Tom King with art by Don, Danielle, Danielle Sampier. And issue number one was tremendous. Absolutely adored it. And I am very curious to see where the story goes, especially with all the little hidden Easter eggs and stories and plot lines that could be, you know, followed up upon. I'm very stoked to read this. So let's dig into the synopsis. An army of one. Now a wanted fugitive, Wonder Woman readies herself for battle against Commander Steel and his soldiers, her former love Steve Trevor being one of them. What could this face-off mean for her position in the world of heroes? Will it further her quest for the truth about the rogue Amazon or end in bloodshed? Find out as this demigoddess takes on an entire army. Plus, the prelude to Amazon's attack. So, if you're like me and you like to read books in order, read this, then Amazon's attack. I am stoked. I'm really excited. I love the first issue. This book is going to be something special. So make sure you keep an eye out for that. But that is going to do it for this week's Comics Countdown. To recap, we've got Amazon's Attack number one, Captain America number two, Void Rivals number five, Action Comics number 1058, Captain Marvel number one, Green Arrow number five, The Immortal Thor number three, Alan Scott the Green Lantern number one, Firepower number 28, and Wonder Woman number two. I like how we bookended the list this week with Wonder Woman family books. So make sure... You do that, too. Go over to your local comic book shop and pick up some wonderful comics. And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is the first time you're joining us on the Geeksplain podcast and you like what I do here, feel free to subscribe to us on the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review. We drop new episodes every single Wednesday, and honestly, ratings, reviews, and subscriptions really do help me and the podcast out in this weird podcasting algorithm space, raises up our stock, and gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you. And if you give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever you want to call it, I will read your review here live on the podcast. You can write anything you want. I will be forced to read every single word. 
As long as you give those five stars, though, the sky's the limit, and I would be happy to read anything you would like me to read. Uh, and you'll get the honor of joining our Terrific 21, including Seafire ND, Joshua Pastel Pixels, Matt Draper, Burrito Man 88, Doug from For Every Kind of Geek, Don Swanson, That Guy Brian, Mouth Dork, Dallas Meeks, Alock and AZ, Amazing Spider Fan, Sass, Jedi Jesse 20, Ken 4656, Director Hall, Mullet Overlord, Invisible Man 11, Ed Likes Things, Clip 326, That Logan, and Kenneth from Norway. I want to say a huge thank you to these fine folks for their reviews, and I cannot wait to hear yours. If you'd like to be part of the Geeksplained mailbag, send your emails to geeksplained at gmail.com, put mailbag in the subject header, and I will read it here on the Wednesday show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the podcast, participate in polls that decide future episodes, get first notification for announcements regarding the show, or maybe you just want to shoot the shit with me on the latest geeky news, feel free to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Pod. that's at P-O-D for as long as Twitter, not calling it X, is around and as I continue to try to get better at Instagram. It's a process. It's a process. Also, this Friday and every Friday is the Geeksplained Book Club, where I, alongside my fellow Emerald Archers, Jacob Brown and Malcolm Russell Nelson, are currently going through every single issue of every single volume of Green Arrow Rebirth. This week, we are kicking off the Rebirth era proper with the first volume of the uh, of the series entitled The Death and Life of Oliver Queen. Uh, last week, we kicked off the back half of the season with year one the story by andy diggle and jock which kind of set the stage for everything we're going to be talking about from this week through the rest of this year this is going to take us all the way into the new year so it is a good time to be a green arrow fan we're going to be talking all about his misadventures in the rebirth era so join us won't you this friday be there or be square not a circle Y'all know better at this point. But that's going to do it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I want to say a huge thank you once again for Porn Sock Pachette Show for coming back to the podcast. Our first returning creator on this is a big deal for me. And I love his insight, his, uh, his perspective, and how he looks at things and how he crafts stories. So it is absolutely just my pleasure to have him on the show. He has an open invitation to come back anytime he likes with reckless abandon. No strings attached on that. And no limitations, but I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Uh, the Dead Boy Detectives are characters that people don't immediately think of, and I hope that through this story, through that Netflix adaptation that we talked about, and hopefully through just word of mouth, people are going to really dig into these characters and really enjoy them as much as, obviously, Pornstock and I do. Uh, go pick up the trade in two weeks. Again, as of this recording, on November 7th, they are dropping that trade for the series, collects the entire series. It's incredible. If you couldn't already tell, we love the story very much, so do us both a favor and go check that out. But I'm going to go ahead and shut things off there. I'm going to go ahead and call it. That is going to do it for this week's episode. Next week, we are going to be coming right back here with a brand new episode of the Geek Explained Podcast. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for the Geek Explained Podcast, I have been Eric Azana. Thank you so much for listening. Everybody stay safe, stay spooky, and we will see you next time. Point 